You know, sanity, I suppose, is always at a premium, but sometimes it's more rare than ever. And you wonder, how is the political, the social scene to be analyzed? So we call upon perhaps the most sane of all observers, the humorist. Art Buckwald is there. Good to batting be here, again stud. At bat. Yeah. And while Reagan slept is a collection of a good number of his columns of recent re- year and recent events. And Putnam of the publishers. And once again, our guest is the political and social observer of the human comedy, Mr. Art Buckwald. And so his thoughts about this administration, other administrations, other governments, and the way we live. Right. In a moment after this message. And so we begin, Mr. Buckwald, we begin with, well, While Reagan Slept, the title. Yeah, well, the reason I brought that title out is because people don't know too much about what goes on in the White House while Reagan is sleeping. And what goes on in the White House is that Bonzo lives in the White House on the fourth floor. People don't know this. And when Reagan's sleeping, Bonzo goes, sneaks down into the Oval Office, and he does most of the things that we don't like that Reagan does because Bonzo is a very malicious uh, chimp. And uh, Bonzo was old sidekick from Warner Brothers. Well, films. that's it. Uh, Reagan is very loyal to the ah, people that he was in the movie business with. I see. And Bonzo didn't have a home. They wanted to put him in the old actor's home, and he didn't want that. So um, the president persuaded Nancy to let Bonzo live on the fourth floor. I don't know if she's happy with yes. it, but that's where Bonzo is. And when you see anything bad happen... In the White House, you know it's not the president, but it's Bonzo who's responsible for it. Well, a- as you're saying, I'm thinking, do you think Bonzo, it says the White House announced today that it was considering taxing unemployment benefits as a way of getting people to look for jobs. Now, we know this did come out of the White House not yes, too long ago. Bonzo you maintain it. it was Bonzo. Yeah, now in this particular instance, uh, Mrs. Reagan and the president were on the West Coast. So Bonzo had the Oval Office all to himself. And he just got there on one of those computers. And as you know, chimps can write. If you put 40 chimps in a room, Uh they can write all the best novels of the world. Well, Bonzo got on his computer, and he just wrote out the press release. AP had it, Uh and they put it out on the wire, and nobody on the West Coast knew what was going on. And they called back, and they found out that Bonzo was down there and he and he uh, he wanted to tax unemployment benefits, mm-hmm. and then the worst thing of all is that he got on the hotline to Andropov and he started insulting Andropov, <coughs> and almost started you mean a war. Some comments, yeah, uh, but some wild rhetoric yeah. that we've been hearing. You think is Bonzo inspired? It's all Bonzo uh, inspired. Uh-huh. I don't think the president uh. would ever do the things that they say he does. I notice in your, in your I suppose we can call this communique of yes, Buckwald. Sir. Uh, the screen lit up. You say, after a while, Bonzo got bored. This is your theory. Yeah. You can't prove this, or can you? No, I, I was yeah. there. But you, Oh, you were there. No. I see, I see. And started jumping around, Bonzo did. He saw the tele, quoting from Buckwald's Bonzo in the White House, which opens the book while Reagan slept. He saw the telex machine that said hotline to the Kremlin and started hitting the keys. The screen lit up with... Happy Thanksgiving to American capitalists. This is not a test. And Bonzo responded, Andropov is the biggest turkey in the Soviet Union. This is not a test. And I suppose that caused a bit of tension. In the, it did. Uh, it was uh, one of those things that have made the Cold War even colder is Bonzo has access to the hotline. And uh, I think um, we all Americans should worry about it. But uh, Reagan is going to keep Bonzo there as long as he's there, he said. Because he's Well, he said the same thing about Watts, so we can't be sure. By the way, on this very day of our conversation here, which is a day not heard this day by you listening, uh, Mr. Watt resigned and was reluctantly accepted the resignation by the president. I'm going to miss Watt very much. You are. He was great material for me. There's about four articles in the book about Watt. I could have done a whole book on him. I, I wonder, I didn't should we, do it on Reagan. for our Lang Syne, do what's on first, which is on page 33, 
Yeah, this is sort of a nostalgic. Yeah, you remember the wistful. old Abbott and Costello yeah. routine? Yeah. All right. Uh, you ask me who's on first. Who's on first? No, what's on first? Who is what? What is the Secretary of the Interior? He wants to sell all the mineral lights on, on federal land. What for? I don't know. I thought I don't know was on second. What's on second, too? He's touching all the bases. How can what be on first and second? Because he's playing both ends against the middle. What for? Because Watt doesn't believe you should support large tracts of wilderness which don't produce one nickel for the government. If Watt is on first and second, who is on third? Watt is on third. Why is he on third? Because he thinks there is oil and gas under it. He just leased it to you-know-who. I don't know who. It doesn't matter who, as long as they pay royalties to Watt. If Watt is on first, second, and third, who is at shortstop? No one is at shortstop because it's being strip-mined for coal. Can Watt do that? I don't know. If Watt is playing all the bases, then who is on the mound? Who is not on the mound? Watt won't let anybody on the mound because he's the only one who can pitch to the mining interest. Let me get this straight. Watt is on first. What is on second, and what is on third, and what is also pitching to the coal companies, then who is catching? Wrong again. What is catching? What is he catching? Hell from the environmentalists, the Sierra Club, the National Audubon Society, and the National Wildlife Federation. What for? Because he won't play ball with them. Who is in the outfield? No, Watt is in the outfield. He's trying to sell it to private developers for resort condominiums. How can you have a game if you sell the outfield? Who knows? Isn't there an umpire to call Watt out when he's off base? Watt says he's the umpire, and he calls him as he sees them. Why doesn't somebody kick dirt in his face? Because the president keeps cheering him on from the side. What president? Watt's president. I thought Reagan was president. He is. Reagan is Watt's president. You mean Watt doesn't have to follow the book as long as Reagan eggs him on? Watt makes up his own rules as he goes along. He sounds like a foul ball. He's a hit with people who hate conservationists. What's going to happen to all of us if he wins? Exactly. Uh, well, he didn't to... win. You know, he no. lost. Well, I, in, lost the, in the reading of that, I sensed a slight touch of wistfulness in your voice. Yeah, it is sort yeah. Of... I, I'm, I'm about as sad about what going as President Reagan is. I think the two of us are going to miss him oh. for different reasons. Yes. <laughs> I was thinking we're told that recovery is in the air. You know, yeah. everyone says it's recovery. Yeah. I find more and more people not working, but we're told recovery's right. in the air. Right. So you have something called Help Wanted on page 26. Now, I remember during the Depression, there was a Depression back yeah. in the 30s, and there were always these Help Wanted, hardly a situation. When, but Help Wanted ads were most popular reading more yeah. than sports page. Well, this uh, column was inspired by the fact that President Reagan, in response to a reporter's question on unemployment, replied he picked up the Sunday Washington Post and read 24 pages of Help Wanted ads. Yeah. He said, what we need to do is make more people qualified to go and apply for these jobs. Mm -hmm. Now, I remember this when Frederico, a shelf who had been laid off by the government, came to see me to complain he couldn't find a job. Uh -huh. Why don't you look in the help wanted section in the Washington Post? You're speaking for me now. Oh, we won't And I'll be Frederico. Oh, you'll be Frederico. I can't afford the Post. Here, I said, throwing the help wanted pages at him. Now you have no excuse. I started reading the pages. Hey, this sounds good. Some company wants to sell you sell your, your immunologist. Well, there you are. Why don't you apply for it? What is a cellular immunologist? I haven't, don't have the slightest idea, but I'm sure you can fake it until you learn the ropes. Hmm, and then I'll circle it. Do you know what a psychiatric nurse is supposed to do? I would assume he or she must take care of mentally sick people, counsel them, provide them with drugs, and look after their physical needs. I did that when I was a chauffeur in the government. Most of the people I drove were crazy or they wouldn't be entitled to a chauffeured car. All it takes to be a psychiatric nurse is common sense. You'd be perfect for the job. Okay, I'll circle that one. Here's one that sounds interesting. Wanted. Nuclear energy safety instructor for breeder reactor facility. I wonder what I'd be required to do for that. It's a snap. See, all you have to do is walk around the plant. If you see a water pipe leaking or a red light blinking, 
reported to the janitor. Is that a safe job? Of course it's safe. They give you a white badge to wear. If it turns a motley green, that means the reactor's giving off more radioactivity than the human body can absorb. What do I do then? You clear everybody out of the building until the public relations people announce it's safe to go back in again. Well, it's a job. Hey, listen to this one. If you are unhappy in your present data systems position, we are looking for you. The position we have open requires a computer program who can evaluate stress factors on aerospace, high-tension materials, and divide new methods of factoring mathematical blueprint formulae with heat intensities of 8,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Starting salary, $40,000. Hey, that's more money than I could make as a psychiatric nurse. And the work is probably more fulfilling, too. I wouldn't be surprised if you were put to work on the B-1 bomber. The ad says people will be interviewed tomorrow at the Holiday Inn in Bethesda. Well, you can stop off there after the interview with the breeder reactor plant. Wait a minute. Saudi Arabia is advertising for a neurosurgeon, <laughs> and they provide housing and servants with a job. What do you think of that one? You better talk it over with your wife. So you'll be busy operating all day long, and then she might get bored that there's nothing to do. Now, do you see anything else that appeals to you? Can I take the pages home with me and study them at my leisure with a dictionary? Be my guest. Thanks a million. I didn't know there were so many great jobs going begging these days. Neither did I. Thank God President Reagan reads the Washington Post. You know something? It's hard to tell now, isn't it? What is humor and, and what, what is, real. is real? Yeah. That is the whole point that I, I'm constantly making now is that it used to be the role of the satirist and the humorist to take a situation and exaggerate it. Now I find myself as a satirist and a humorist bringing it into perspective so people can understand what's going on. Because when the president talks about limited nuclear war, when he talks about missiles, MX missiles, B-1 bombers, Star Wars, that's stuff that I'm supposed to make up and people are supposed to laugh at it because it's so crazy. But when they're crazy, yeah. then I have to remain sane in order to yeah. get the satire out of it. So what I'm really doing, in effect, is rewriting the front pages of the yeah. newspapers. And the fact is, the fact is, Bonzo's really in the White House. Bonzo is in the White House, and uh, these ads are in the papers. But there's nobody that can take yeah. those jobs. The people that are out of yeah. work are the people who don't have any jobs. So I suppose that day after day after day of this outrageous stuff, that the edicts that come forth, our comments, we finally accept it as a matter of fact. Well, people are accepting more on television now. I mean, you turn on the set, we've got about four or five really good, solid wars going around the world. Take the example of the French now. They just sold these airplanes to Iraq, and uh, now Iran's threatening to cut off the oil for the entire world. We're sending our ships there. Now, this is all stuff that would either be written by me or uh, one of these uh, writers who was always writing about World War yeah. III. You know, who would have thought, even as, I know a question I want to ask before we go with some more readings of, of the observations of Art Buckwall. Do you find, is humor tougher now? You know, is there more outrageousness now than there was, say, Nixon or predecessors? It gets more out outrageous yeah. as time goes along. I think the one area that uh, I don't think I made fun of 10 years ago, which now, unfortunately, you have to ridicule, is the, the, the unthinkable talk that's going on. Mm -hmm. We never did talk yeah. about could we beat the Russians, could we make a first strike, could they make a first strike on us. Uh, war in space, the fact that computers are going to decide the next war for us because we can't react fast enough. If you've got eight minutes to react when you see a missile coming this way, uh, the president might be out riding on his horse. You know, uh, just stick with that. I, this is the horrible, of course, this is the most terrifying part. You say that about 10, 15 years ago, we, the world knew, scientists, political figures, People on the street all knew, uh, know that a nuclear war, <laughs> no survivors. You yeah. do, you wish you didn't. Yeah. Okay, everyone accepts that. But you think there's more talk of the feasibility of it now? Yeah, the, uh, it's being, winnability. Yep, yeah. it's being talked about very seriously. 
You had them using words like limited nuclear war, protracted nuclear war. Now they call the MX missile the peacekeeper. I mean, they are finding names that are trying to lower the horror level of these horrible weapons, which we have not seen used since World War II. And the day that somebody sees one of these used and sees what it's going to do, I mean, even now when you have these tests and people can't go back to their homelands 20 years after the tests in, in a we talk, you know that you're fooling around with something that is, is, is not laughable. And you said since World War II. We know, too, that the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs are firecrackers yeah. compared to what is now. That's yeah. an addition. But I believe that most of the people now are technocrats. And they are thinking in terms of what it can do electronically. You mean it, people in charge, you mean? The people in yeah. charge. And there was an article the other day where this man who has been wargaming nuclear wars since World War II, uh, he has not been called in for consultation with the Nixon government. He was called in by every other president. And he says the people now in charge have no idea what nuclear weapons can do, what the dangers of them are, and they're just playing around. We're supposed to be playing catch up with the Russians, but at some point, they could break us because we can't afford to go on much longer with that. Now, that's not funny, and it's not in a book that is funny, but I use those situations to try and be funny to make people catch their attention. You have a sequence called, uh, sequence, an observation called, you'll love this bomb. Right. Now, what, there are some skeptics, is quoting uh, Art Buckwald in the country of Western Europe, who are not sold on the argument that we need to build a neutron bomb. Yeah, the question doesn't deserve a response, but I'll give one anyway. The United States military new strategy is to prepare itself for conventional nuclear and chemical war battles. Because the Soviets outnumber the NATO forces, the neutron bomb will give us the parity we need to deter the Russians from attacking the West. I might say, Stud, that the neutron bomb is supposed to kill people but leave buildings standing so there'll be a nice city still. Chicago will still be where it is. Nobody in it, but Chicago. Nobody in it, but Chicago will still look as nice, probably even nicer than it did before because there won't be people in it. And then uh, there are other people who say, thank God, Uncle Sam, they have told us to stuff our neutron bombs in the ground. And I say, if that's the way you feel about it, we should keep our bombs in Utah. You see, the whole point of this article is everybody wants these weapons, you know, all the Americans, but they don't want them in their state. And there's no place to put these bombs. Now, the other part of it, which... Uh, is very serious is that if tomorrow you had disarmament and both sides decided to bury their bombs, their neutron bombs or their hydrogen bombs, there's no place to bury them. Where can you bury a bomb these days? You can't bury it into the sea. It will kill all the fish. You can't bury it in Utah or Nevada or California. And actually, there's no place to bury this stuff once we've, we've made it. And particularly, that's, uh, particularly after you bury the people. Yeah. And no room something for else, this is real heavy. This is because, again, we come to you, the satirist, yeah. that it's more and more difficult to be funny. Yeah. Well, it's not more and more difficult no. to be funny, but it's, it's more and more difficult to um, write uh, the insanity that's going on. The flaw, well, there's so many... Uh, the, uh, years ago, we never dreamed that the word humanist would be a pejorative Secular. And now it's secular humanist. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Well, you know, that didn't fly at all because when you call someone a commie or a lefty or a pinko or a red, now that had some meaning. I mean, people knew what you were. But when you call someone a secular humanist, nobody knows what that means. I don't mind being called a secular yeah, humanist. Yeah, but it's kind of dirty. It has a thing, something dirty, though. Well, it's, it's dirty if you say it sneeringly. But I want to tell you something. A secular humanist has not worked for the anti-communist people uh, and the conservatives that keep using this word, calling teachers secular humanists. 
Well, half the country figures, gee, that could be good for the kids. They might learn something. Well, then both you say that teacher is a, what, a whispered secular humanist. Secular humanist, yeah. yeah. And she might they not. think it had something to do with sex. Well, that might be. Yeah. yeah. They I think mean. it was uh, probably uh, strange, or she was strange. And, and, and uh, I'm glad they're using secular humanists because they know it's not going to catch on. Well, still we know that... Uh, uh, Bolshe, Bolshe, that's a good one. The old Bolshe is good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Bolshe, you know, Pinko. You've been called every oh, one Oh, I've been called by half a dozen. What's your least? favorite stud? Well, Bolshe's not bad. I don't mind that. Pinko is too... Bolshe. Pinko is too delicate. Yeah. yeah. Too sissy, as a matter of fact. Yeah. See, yeah. pink, the word pink, that's wrong. Yeah. Red, well, red is a solid kind of thing. I got red socks, red Do you shirt. mind being called a fellow traveler? Fellow traveler is also tangential. Yeah. I read yeah. bang, red. You went red. And I got a red tie, red, red shirt, red yeah. everything. And, you know, t- yeah. a lady once asked me, a woman once asked me when she saw, took the cover off the first book, Division Street Americas, mm-hmm, why is the color red? Yeah. Uh, that is the, the hard cover. Yeah. I just, gee, I don't know. I'll have to look yeah. into it. But in any event. Can I tell a story that has nothing to do with uh, what we're talking about? I was plugging my book in Atlanta. And this is a true story. And I was signing uh, signing this book. Uh, can I mention it? Of course. While Reagan slept. And <laughs> while I was that's doing a, it. That's a tip to me to get with it. <laughs> yeah. And while I was doing it. Uh, a woman came in and she bo- she bought a, a picture book of, of Jesus, and Jesus was on the cover. She was an old lady, and she came to the buyer and she said, he doesn't have blue eyes. And the buyer said, oh, there must be a mistake. And she rushed out and she went to the art department at Rich's department store and said <laughs> the artist paint Jesus' eyes blue and then brought it back to the lady, yeah. and the lady bought the book. Yeah. The wise, well, blonde. <laughs> but I didn't know he was blonde. He came from the Middle East, you know. And in fact, he, uh, there's a rumor that he, he was a Jew, you know. Yeah. <laughs> In any event, uh, as you can gather, Art Buckwald is my guest, and uh, Bonzo in the White House, the first sequence, the overall title for Reagan Slept, and Putnam the Publishers. And I hope you can guess that it's very good out loud reading, too. And, Pat, before we take a break for for the end of the first half and before the second half, you mentioned, you casually mentioned it might have a sexual connotation, you said, about humanists. Yeah. And you have something on sex and violence. Yeah. On page 59. Yeah, and the reason I wrote that one is because every time people mention sex, uh, they always mention violence with it as if the two acts go together. Well, I've never thought of sex as a violent act. I've always thought of it as kind of a nice thing. And I would like, uh, you know, sex to be more involved with things like uh, sex and banana bread. Well, let's have a dialogue on this. Uh, yeah. well, as, why as we say these days, me, let's dialogue it. Right, why don't you ask me uh, what I'd link sex with? Well, you said banana bread, huh? Yeah. And so... Shall I, I d- and then you ask me why banana bread. Yeah, I know. I'm doing you now. Okay. Well, wh- why I banana like you bread? doing me. You sound better yeah. than I do doing <laughs> Why me. banana bread? I happen to like banana bread, and I also happen to like sex. I don't consider banana bread any more violent than sex, providing the other person has no objection. You missed the point. The people who are in the censoring business would get nowhere if they said they were against sex and banana bread. They're unlinkable. So is sex and violence. Now, if they want to attack rape and violence, then I might join their club. And I might even go along with their reservation about very young teenagers involved with sex. What I think is wrong is that by generalizing and putting sex and violence together, they're making people believe that if you're indulging in one, you're committing the other. Would you object to sex and uh, frozen yogurt? Why, does frozen yogurt turn you on? It does. uh Every time I see a pretty girl on the beach, I think to myself, I wish you had frozen yogurt. <laughs> well, at least frozen yogurt isn't a violent act, unless you push it in someone's face. Well, if I had frozen yogurt, I would never resort to violence. How about linking sex with a flying kite? I don't believe the moral majority would do that. See, they see sex as a violent act. Maybe that's their problem. Anyone with an unhappy sex life is prone towards violence. Well, if everything you say is true, 
Uh, what can just two of us do about it besides look at girls in their bikinis? Not much. Let's find a refreshment stand that sells banana bread and frozen yogurt. Well, what good would that do? It would be committing a nonviolent statement <laughs> about sex, which everyone on this beat seems to have on their minds. <laughs> and so that's Art Buckwald. And if, as we take a break, to remind you again that it, his new book of columns, On to the Point, <laughs> unfortunately, very much to the point, uh, is called Why Reagan Slept in Putnam the Publishers, and it's available. And after this message, we'll resume with Mr. Buckwald and further reflections on the contemporary scene. Resuming with that, Buckwald, where do we pick up from here? You, you're divided. Hey, I think we're going to do the jelly bean economics. All right. Jelly bean economics. Okay, you be my nephew. I'm explaining That's, it to him. All right. On page, it's on page 67. 67. Now, and my nephew John came over the house. All right, and he won. He couldn't understand Reaganomics, so I decided to explain it to him in terms he could understand. I have here, I said, a jar of jelly beans. May I have one? No, you may not. You see, these jelly beans belong to the government, and for years people have been eating more jelly beans than they can put in the jar. We have a deficit in jelly beans. Now, what President Reagan hopes to do by 1984. It's to have as many jelly beans in the jar as we consume. Well, how is he going to do that? By cutting down on the number of people who can have jelly beans. The fewer people who get jelly beans, the less chance there will be of the jar getting empty. Well, that makes sense. Now, I'm going to give you ten jelly beans. Oh, what for? That's your tax cut, to which you are entitled to. Well, I thought you just said that President Reagan was going to see that Less people got jelly beans. He's just taking jelly beans away from people who don't deserve them. But if you're working and putting jelly beans into the jar, you don't have to give back as many as you did before. Well, then how does Mr. Reagan ever hope to fill the jar? In several ways. He's hoping that you will take the jelly beans mm -hmm. he gave you, mm -hmm. put them in a jelly bean savings account. Then the banks can loan them out to companies who will make more jelly beans and provide Jobs for the people. Oh, what good will that do? The more people who have jobs, the more jelly beans they will be able to put into the jar, and pretty soon the government will have a surplus of jelly beans. Well, how much uh, will the banks charge to loan the jelly beans? At the moment, every hundred jelly beans they give, the borrower has to pay back 121 jelly beans, plus an extra jelly bean for the paperwork. That's a lot of jelly beans. It seems like a lot. But President Reagan believes that as soon as more and more people get their jelly bean tax cut, the banks will charge less to loan them out. The problem at the moment is that the government still has to borrow a large amount of jelly beans to take care of its obligations. So it is paying a higher rate for jelly beans than the banks can offer. That doesn't seem right. The president doesn't like it either. So he's ordered another severe cutback in his jelly bean budget. For example... School children will no longer be served jelly beans with their lunch. Yeah, but suppose people eat their jelly bean tax cut instead of investing it. Then the jar will be empty by 1984, and nobody will have a bean to his name. And that's all there is to Reaganomics? That's all there is, in a nutshell. John, oh, when you... But that's it. You think that's it. Well, you said it. That's all there is in a nutshell. Yeah. yeah well, good. oh, one last thing. Uh... John wrote his paper. Yeah. And I asked him the next day how he did. Yeah. And he said he didn't know. And I said, why not? Because my teacher was fired because the school ran out of jelly beans. Okay. I wanted that. So that was the way he explained Reaganomics in terms of Mr. Reagan's pension for jelly beans. Well, here we go again, don't we? As to uh, Bonzo being around and about. He's there. And... It's off, see, all this is offered seriously, and the commentators speak it with great seriousness, the president said. Yeah. And they got the economics advisor right. saying, or as they have Cap Weinberger speaking right. of the military. It's all done seriously. Right. And the words are pronounced right and everything, and uh, it's accepted seriously. Yep. Megan is very good at communicating. I have a piece in the book about um, him selling the his policies the way he used to sell General Electric uh, refrigerators. You know, he just sold them the same way, and um, 
But, you know, the thing about it is that um, who's ever president in 1984, uh, we're in sort of a rise. But once that uh, bill comes in, that $200 billion deficit bill, uh, no president, either Reagan or a Democratic president, is going to be able to do much about inflation then because everybody's going to have to go out and try to borrow money, and the government has to go out and borrow the same money. So the interest rates are going to go soaring. You well, can you know, take the, it from uh, me. On that very point, you have one called sandbagged. We could do... Oh, no, that's something you, else. You know what I'd like we to talk skip about? skip sandbagged. Huh? You know what I'd like to talk about? What? Dirty commercials. All right. Dirty political commercials. Right. See, commercials are getting dirtier and dirtier all the time. And what happens is that the candidates are, uh, they're not trying to give their own side of the story. They're telling what a rat the other guy is. So the commercials are getting dirtier. And I have in this book a, a scene where a guy that looks like Richard Widmark pu pushes an old lady down a stair in a wheelchair. And then underneath, a voiceover says, uh, that's what Congressman Kelly thinks of Social Security. Yeah, I mean, so, so you know, uh, as, as our political system goes on now, we're getting dirtier and dirtier. More money is being needed to keep these commercials on the air. And people are selling out before they even get nominated, much less elected. And nobody knows where this system's going because... I'm against political action committees. I think that's dirty stuff because they use their money for hit lists. They want to knock one guy out. They don't want to let On a single die. issue, usually. Yeah. And it could be gun control. It could be teacher's salary. It could be... There's so many packs. Barsham, Everybody yeah. has one now. But there's money there. And what you're buying, studs, and I don't think the American people understand this, you're not buying the guy's vote. You're buying access to the guy so that you can give your story. And access is what the name of the game is in Washington. And if I can tell my story to you if you're an elected official, that's a lot. And if I gave you $5,000, you got to go see me. But the poor guy out there sitting by the fire, uh, he has no access to his congressman. When he writes to his congressman, he gets a reply written by a computer. He doesn't get it written by the congressman. You want to talk about chocolate? I was going to talk about that as we're, so far, the political scene, the economic scene, observed by political pundit Art Buckwald. We come to designer chocolate. Now, we know designer. The word designer becomes yeah. the well, adjective for designer jeans. Cardin and... Yves Saint Laurent, all the designers are going into things they don't know anything about. I don't think many designers know a darn thing about men's clothes, and they're all in the men's clothes business, too. I like a nice suit. I haven't seen anything that the designers have done to make my suit look better than it was already. That's why I'm not well-dressed. But that's also part of the whole beautiful people idea yeah. and columns and yeah. hype. Well, hype is part yeah. of what this is about, really. So now... They've got designers designing chocolate. Now, what the hell do you do to design a chocolate? There you is actual design designing? See, now I don't Bill know. Bill Blass has chocolate. I had no idea. Oh, yeah, they sell like mad. He put his name on chocolate. You see, when you say this to me, I don't know whether it's a, you're, you're doing a buckwall column or it's an actual fact. Now you're telling me it's a fact. Can I say something? Yeah. Everything in this book is the truth. Yeah. There are no lies in this book. It's the only honest book <laughs> that you will find. This is the horrifying part. It's the funny part. But the Let's do designer chocolates. There's a dialogue there on what page day? 94. 94. And you decide which of the two. Who, who's, who's doing the dialogue? You and the uh, Okay. The I will ask you. You're the... Um, well, we'll do the scene. All right. I will say first, where is the master? That's the designer. I say, hush. He's in his atelier working on new bonbons for Mother's Day. Renee, come in here right away. Yes, master. I believe I've got it. Look at these sketches. What do you think? It's divine, master. I filled the bust of the chocolate with raisins, 
brought in the waist with vanilla cream and put butter crunch on both hips. Kel inspiration. Christian Dior in his greatest days would never have thought of it. Now look at this sketch. I call this Evening in Vienna. It's so gorgeous it makes your mouth water. Do you know what makes it different from other chocolates you've seen? Tell me, Master. I put the nuts on the outside like sequins so that you can see them before you bite into the bonbons. Most designers hide their nuts inside the chocolate, and you don't know they're there. But if you put the nuts like so, it not only adds luster to the outside, but it says, I'm yours. I can't wait to see it in a box. Now, this is my daytime chocolate that you can eat at a lunch or fancy tea. It's so simple, and yet so chic. I put a tiny dash of Grand Marnier in it, so it will make you feel naughty. Oh, master, if only you could think of putting a liqueur in a plain chocolate bonbon. Now, over here, in the upper left-hand corner of the box, I've designed a caramel. It's not an ordinary mm. caramel. One layer is brown, one layer is pink, and one layer is peppermint. The candy critics will go wild when they see it. Even Yves Saint Laurent never put brown, pink, and peppermint in the same caramel. Wait, there's more. Look at this one. A seashell chocolate? That's what it looks like. But when you strip off the chocolate, there's a tiny white saltwater taffy ball inside. Elizabeth Taylor will go crazy over this one. And now for my second layer. I have a big surprise. In the very center of the box, I'm placing a coffee cream filled star with a red cherry on the bias. Mon Dieu! No wonder they call you the greatest bonbon designer in the world. I've saved the best for last. A perfect chocolate sparrow's egg? And what do you think's inside? Oh, tell me, Master, I can't stand the suspense. A jelly bean! I think I'm going to faint. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow. There it is. Oh, God. As, as the old lady used to say about half a century ago, I don't know what the world's coming to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. but that's kind but of But she's fun. right. It's a good question. Neither, you, she's not the only one. Can I tell you a trade secret? Yes, sir. The trade secret of writing a column three times a week is you just can't hit Reagan over the head or Reaganomics or Watt or whoever all the time. So I try to mix it up as much as possible. Yeah. And the idea is not to let you know what's coming next. I have a lot of fun with doctors, you know. They're great. Have we got a doctor sequence? Oh, we here? have a great doctor's one Where here. Where's that again? And that is that uh, there's defensive medicine now. You know, doctors, for every doctor in America, there are two lawyers waiting to sue them. I mean, that, that's, that's the ratio now. Two lawyers for every doctor. So the doctors have to pronounce defensive medicine. That's page 279. Mm-hmm. And I will ask, I will play myself, and you will be the doctor. All right. Uh, how do you practice defensive medicine? Well, suppose you come to see me with swollen tonsils. The first thing I would do is order an X-ray of your stomach. Because? In case I want to take your tonsils out, I want to make sure I'm not sued for giving you ulcers. That's only good medical practice. Then I have to order blood tests to protect myself in case you had malaria or yellow fever. A swollen tonsils an indication of malaria or yellow fever? It's highly unlikely. But your lawyers can always find a doctor who will say they are. See, after the blood tests, I might order a brain scan. A brain scan? Just a precaution in case you try to claim that after I took out your tonsils, you lost your memory. Of course, I would also have to give you an EKG and a stress test, so they couldn't get me for causing any heart damage. Swollen tonsils aren't what they used to be. Well, neither are malpractice insurance rates. I now have to pay $25,000 a year to my insurance company before I can pick up a tongue depressor. So now after all the tests, I'm ready to have my tonsils out. I should say not. I still have to check out your liver, your thyroid gland, and I'd want pictures of your spine for my files. My spine? That's what defensive medicine is all about. A doctor must be ready to prove that he checked out every part of your body 
before he dealt with the one that was giving you trouble. Suppose you had back trouble before I removed your tonsils. Six months later, you could claim you got on the operating table while I was working on your throat. If I can show the jury, oh, that's you. Oh, if I can show the jury that you had back trouble before the operation, I'd have a better than 50-50 chance of not paying any damages. Okay, let's go to the end yeah. then. Anyhow, the idea is that after you get finished, the doctor giving you all these tests, then the anesthesiologist has to give you a lot more because he's not covered by the same malpractice insurance. And this is what I'm saying, and it's obvious to anybody who's been to a doctor, is that doctors today are ordering a lot more tests than they ever did before, and the price of medicine is going sky high because of the lawyers. It isn't doctors that are doing it, it's the lawyers that are doing it. And the lawyers are out there. Everybody has a lawyer in his family now, and they always want to sue a doctor when things go wrong. Sometimes they shouldn't, sometimes they shouldn't. Well, I'm it's costing this, a lot of medicine. This comes about for a number of reasons, of course. Once upon a time, to look the other way, the doctor was God and no one questioned him. Right. Today there's more and more questioning, and justifiably so. And you know what else? Yeah. The doctors today aren't gods. <laughs> That's right. I mean, and, which is good. I mean, they're also being questioned, which yeah. is good, too. Yeah. But then you're talking about how it could be uh, well, loose and stuff, too. Yeah. And uh, the other doctor column, which I sort of was pleased with, is it has to do with specialists. Now, today, a doctor, when you go to a doctor, he can't treat you for what's wrong with you. He has to send you to a specialist. Now, you try to get an appointment with a specialist, and he's in Vienna. Well, he's in uh, Australia, or yeah. he's in Tel Aviv, uh, giving a paper on his specialty, so you can't get an appointment mm -hmm. with him. Now you find a specialist who is home and can see you, yeah. and as soon as you find him, you wonder why you want to go to him if he isn't, if he's that, if he, if he's any good, he should be given a paper somewhere. Because that's probably a reflection too of the overalls of specialization, almost yeah. every aspect of it. Yeah. You come to that too, so you got plenty of material. Yeah, it's just, yeah. It's just a, by the way, you don't lie. That's earlier, you don't lie. You, sp you speak as it is. Yeah. You add a little, a slight commentary on it, which makes it hilarious, That's but right. it's no longer funny, no, is it? No, no, it's different. <laughs> I mean, you and I have done several of my yeah. books over the years, and as, as you've read them and time goes on, you're starting to realize yeah. yourself yeah. how straight this stuff could be and, and you can still laugh at it, and, but it's straight. And so your columns in what a couple of hundred, five hundred, five hundred papers. What is the nature of letters you get? Is is there a definite oh, pattern there are of a letters? Oh, there a few. Uh, you know, gun control, right to oh, life. These are objecting letters. Yeah. Yeah, those are the ones you get. The ones I don't like are the ones uh, who have students who want you to do their term papers and they yeah. need it by Thursday. Yeah, oh, that you get, yeah. You're also, a different aspect is divided in different sequences. You know, there's uh, the first part deals with the politics in Washington, Bonzo, and Make Me an Offer. Another one called A Hundred Neediest Families. That might be worth talking. Goodbye Ma deals with Ma Bell. Right. And developments. That, that was the saddest thing that happened in America. The saddest. When they broke up Ma Bell. You feel sad about that? She was the only monopoly I really loved. I mean, everything worked in this country. The phones worked. You called them up. They were afraid of being called a monopoly. They always sent someone out. When there was a storm, you always saw the guy out there fixing the telephone lines. Now the local telephone companies are going to charge you zillions of dollars for local calls because the long-distance calls don't cover the course anymore, the local calls. Yeah, Nobody when, comes out ahead on that one. Yeah, but when you lost a dime... Uh, They'll they send it to you. you. But when you owe a dime, they want it right then. Well, that's yeah. fair. That's fair. That is, they want it right then. Yeah, but that's fair. And because, But you don't get it right then if you lose it. No. Yeah, that's but, fair. But I wait see. a minute, yeah. Stud. <laughs> if you didn't want to give them the dime, you walked away from the pay machine, and then that phone kept ringing for an hour, but you weren't there. That happens quite often. Yeah. yeah. But I liked, um, I liked Marbell. I must admit that I... I'm starting to like monopolies again. Yeah, I like, like regulation. Like, I like the airlines being regulated. I don't like yeah. deregulated airlines. Well, now, of course, you come to the whole matter of deregulation, which is yeah. a holy... Yeah, uh, and we thought by deregulating that costs would go down, but it really just gave everybody a license to shove them up 
and shove it to us. Should we read the mob bell? It's wistful and sad. Or should we go on to other matters? You have well, dirty movie. Well, we don't have much time. I don't want to. Dirty movie. We have to another. I think the three things we. Well, two we have to. Dirty movie and Horatio Alger. All right, give me dirty movie. What it's page? Three fifteen. We won't read the whole thing. We'll just but read the. But uh, this deals with what is considered dirty by those who run things today. Three uh, two fifteen. Uh, three fifteen. Okay. That's one. Or you have a number of choices. That's uh, there's a well, let's the CIA. Just read part we of haven't it. done the we'll media's families. We'll just read part of it. All right. A dirty movie. Perhaps you set the scene for that. Okay. Uh, we just finished Windlow uh, dinner, and Windlow said, "I have a surprise for everyone coming in the living room." Well, we thought we were going to see a dirty movie. We thought Deep Throat. Debbie goes to Dallas. Uh-oh. And uh, go ahead. It's something much worse. See, I managed to get an illegal. Perhaps you set the scene, the actual event. Yeah. For this it had to was do with the Canadian uh, acid rain. Acid rain. The government said it's. They they wouldn't let a documentary yeah. into the U.S. because they said it was propaganda. Right. And it had to do with acid rain. So I say something much worse than uh, than deep throat. I managed to get an illegal print of a Canadian documentary on acid rain. And then a murmur went through the crowd. Couldn't we get in trouble watching a dirty film from Canada? <laughs> You're damn right you could. The Justice Department's declared all Canadian films on acid rain to be pure propaganda, and they have to be clearly marked as such. And they also said the Canadian Film Board has turned over to justice the names of those who asked to see the films. I've never seen a dirty film on acid rain. This is going to be exciting. Well, and How'd you get the film? I smuggled it in from Toronto. You really took a risk. What if you got caught? I could have been fined, sent to jail. United States Customs has strict orders to look for Canadian Film Board movie prints. Even Why are they so uptight about films on acid rain? Well, they're afraid that if Americans see them without the films being marked clearly as propaganda, we believe that acid rain is an environmental problem. <laughs> you would think the Justice Department would have more to do than worry about Canadian documentaries. You don't know much about Justice Department. They found a legal issue, now they understand. They've been so confused about civil rights and EPA and antitrust, they jumped at the chance to sock it to Canada. The Canadians now are going to think twice next time they finance film about pollution. How long is it? It runs only 30 minutes, but it'll blow your mind. That's it. Yeah. Well, but now, what finally happened with that? Finally okayed? What no, it finally? wasn't okayed. It had you to know, be marked propaganda. Still marked propaganda. Yeah. It's about dirty. Yeah. Let's well, do Horatio Alger. Too. It all leads up to, of course, Horatio Alger. And, and the remember, reason why I wrote strive and succeed, and from boot black to president, and it's Horatio Alger. Yeah. And, and this is toward the end. You call Reed I got Trini. it. And, uh, and the reason for the, I'll play Horatio. All right. And the reason for this is that they're retraining everybody now for different jobs. Hi, Mr. Peters. Remember me, Horatio Alger the Fourth. You laid me off from the company six months ago because I was unskilled labor. Well, I just completed a welding course, and I'm ready to go back to work. Sorry, Horatio, but since you've been gone, the company decided to invest in robot welders. I don't believe your welding skills are necessary any longer. Now, if you knew something about robotics... I don't, sir, but I will retrain myself and become a robot serviceman. I'll see you in six months. That's a good idea, son. Come back when you know something about robots, Horatio, and there'll be a job waiting for you. Hi, Mr. Peters. Well, sir, here's my certificate from the Consolidated Robot School. Mm -hmm. It says I can repair any kind of robot now on the market. This is very impressive. Now, let's see. According to your file... You were in this personnel office last July. Now, since you were here, the company has invested in a state-of-the-art computer that can repair the robots that make our zits. See, we're no longer hiring service people to take care of the robots. But surely, sir, you must need someone to program the computers. As a matter of fact, we do. Have you any experience in this field? I don't at the moment, but I know I can be retrained to become a computer expert. If I do well in school, may I have a job with your company? Of course you can. You show the spirit this corporation is always looking for. Hello, Mr. Peters. Long time no see. As I live and breathe, it's Horatio Alger IV. Now, what have you been up to the past two years? I've been going to an advanced computer programming school, sir, and I am now fluent in basic, Pascal, and Fortran, and I can work with any software in the market. I assume the company is still looking for programmers. We were for a while, Horatio. But then we subcontracted all our programming work to a software company. 
which specialize in improving robot production for zits. We no longer have a computer division of our own, except for a small section devoted itself to collating data on the zit market and then making economic predictions on how the company should expand. Don't worry, Mr. Peters. I will retrain myself to become an economist with an emphasis on long-range zip planning. You need a doctorate before I can hire you. Do not fear, sir. I will drive a taxi during the daytime and go to school at night. If becoming an economist is the only way I can get a job, so be it. I will become one. You show gumption, boy. Bring me that sheepskin and you'll be on the payroll. Three years later. To my eyes deceive me. Is this the little Horatio Alger the fourth used to drop in here to see me about a job? The very same, and I have something to show you. Here, sir, from the Harvard Business School is my doctorate in high-tech economics. And here is my doctoral thesis on the future of the zit market in the 21st century, as broken down by continents and countries throughout the non-communist world. Now that I am retrained, may I have a position with the company? Horatio, please sit down. Since you went off to get your economics degree, we've moved the entire company's operations to South Korea. We won't do anything here except distribute zits to our dealers. I understand, sir. And I certainly don't blame you for going where you can make a better product for much less cost. What are you going to do now, Horatio? The same thing any ambitious American boy would do. I'm going to retrain myself to be a South Korean. <laughs> Again, comic, but unfortunately close to truth. So we come to Art Buckwald and While Reagan Slept, that is available now and published by Putnam. One last thought. We have just a minute or two more. I think, I don't understand this language of computer. When they say software, I always thought software was linens, yeah. sheets. A hardware is hardware. Time, yeah. A saw in a hardware store. And the other thing, the other language I like is friendly computer. I've never met a no. computer I didn't like. <laughs> so we're talking about truth and and what and satire and it's hard mm. to draw the line yeah and it's all here between the covers and so for helping you maintain what semblance of sanity we have and humor may I suggest Art Buckwalls while Reagan slept Putnam and once again sir thanks stud hail and farewell thank you so <laughs> thank much you. I'm on the road 